0: For the third year and counting, Richard Skipper has been celebrating the artists you love. Richard Skipper is all about celebrating life, art, and his guest body of worth. Please join us while he showcases these diverse and talented individuals. Here's Richard Skipper. Welcome to the reunion of Rydell High's graduating class of 1959. Looking over these faces really takes me back to those wonderful bygone days. Although I notice a small portion of alumni missing this evening, I'm sure that they'd want us to know that they're fully present and accounted for in spirit, just the way we always remember them.
1: Just a minute, just a minute. Uh, just a minute, just a minute. Hello everybody, <laughs> happy Sunday and welcome to Richard Skipper Celebrates. Who or what are you celebrating tonight? I'm celebrating Greece, tell me more, tell me more. And speaking of more, it's Tom Moore. I am so excited that he's on the show tonight. I am telling you, I can't put this book down. And I'm reading it over and over and over again. And tonight we're going to talk about process. We're going to talk about the process of how a show gets produced and stays in the consciousness of all of us continuously from the moment that it hits us in our consciousness till now. And, you know, about a year and a half ago, I had the good fortune of having Adrienne Barbeau on this show. And she told me that this book was being written. And I said, please, when the book is completed, I want to be able to celebrate it on the show. And uh, that was a seed that I planted about a year and a half ago. And not only are we celebrating with Tom tonight, but two nights from tonight, we are gonna have many of the original players on both sides of the footlights joining us on this show. And I couldn't be happier. I, here we are, one of my favorite cast recordings Uh, Carol Demas, one of my very best friends, Uh, Sandy, 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 and I love her dearly. And Tom, uh, your body of worth, as I refer to it, uh, way beyond Greece and everything else. I am thrilled that you're here on the show tonight. So thank you for being here and congratulations.
2: Well, thank you very much. And thank you for bringing us on to talk about, about the book and uh, your enthusiasm for the book is deeply appreciated. I love the opening of the show.
1: <laughs> well, thank you. You said earlier that when you hear this music, you feel like it's time to, for you to go into... <laughs> well,
2: I, I also did it again when you actually ran it, uh, you know, as, as you were taping. And I thought, oh, my God, I need to prep. I need to get ready. I need to make sure the cast is all in place. The orchestra's ready for their cue. Those things never go away, as you know. They just stick with you, and it's like Pavlov's dog. You play it, you're on.
1: How many productions to date have you actually uh, directed, been at the helm of?
2: Well, it's been. It's a funny thing looking back on a show like this because uh, because for decades I didn't think about Greece at all. I mean, I was intensely involved for close to a decade because we did not only the Broadway show, which had iteration after iteration after iteration, uh, as new companies came in, which I oversaw and worked with. And then we also had eight touring companies plus uh, two first-class West End London productions. Um, But I have not gone near Greece since. And I wouldn't think about Greece during all those ensuing decades because it was so much a part of my life and I had gone on to other things. So it's been so odd to come back in these last two years when we started working on the book and writing it to revisit it. And now it seems like Greece just closed on Broadway. Uh, I mean, I found myself the other day referring to, yes, we had contributions from all the kids. Well, they're not. There are no kids under 60 uh, that are being interviewed in this book because, uh, because we've all gone on. But it's amazing how you can go back in time like that. It's like time just telescopes and, uh, and you're back in the same place.
1: Well, I had this epiphany moment a few years ago. I was reading um, about the film That's Entertainment. When That's Entertainment came out in 1974, uh, just a year or so before the film Grease came out, when the film uh, when That's Entertainment came out, it had only been twenty years since uh, Gigi, the last big MGM musical, had come out, and so those of us, you know, I, you know, I was a, a kid at the time that That's Entertainment came out, but this nostalgia craze started sweeping the country. And so everybody was thinking back. Uh, we, had, You know, we were going through, you know, we'd gone through the Vietnam War and assassinations of presidents and everything. Everybody was thinking back to a happier time in this country. And I think that when you think that it had only been 20 years since... Uh, that last film of MGM, uh, and then that's entertainment. And then you think about Grease coming along and the timing of everything. And it's pretty much the same thing. It had only been pretty much uh, about two decades since the 1950s had happened. And yet this musical phenomenon hits Broadway uh, with many, it's like the little engine that could uh, to get to Broadway. It didn't just come out of the gate. A, a smash hit, which the book, you know, really chronicles. Uh, it was because of the enthusiasm of uh, everyone that got involved with this. Uh, and even you were a little trepidatious at first of jumping on board with this. And I love the story of, you know, Ken Wasman, you know, having seen a show that you had directed and coming and wanting to have you helm this as the director and the show had nothing to do with what you were going to be asked to do with this production, but it was what he saw in you as a director based on the acting in that production. Do you want to talk a little bit about that for a moment?
2: Yeah, and I'd like to talk a little bit about it uh, because, uh, because I think about it quite often now because people ask me about it. If you think about the... the The difference in 20 years. First of all, I think one of the reasons that nostalgia craze hit was because the 60s had been so tough. So when we were in the 70s, everybody wanted to go back to a happier time, which of course never really existed in the first place, but that's what we always want to go back for. But if you think about it, it's the same as if we went back now in 2022 to to the millennium, to 2000. Do you know that's about the, that's, that's it, 2000 seems like it just happened yesterday. And that's how long, when we did Greece, uh, the 50s were from the real 50s in, in our show. Uh, it, the miracle of, um, of me getting that job, and it really is one of those uh, moments of serendipity, is because not only did that show have nothing to do with it, it was a one-day workshop. And if it hadn't been for a friend of the writer's, uh, seeing an ad in Variety by Ken Waysom and Maxine Fox saying seeking new material. He then called the agent of the writer, who then uh, who then called the producers and got him there to see that show. And although they didn't think it was something they could deal with commercially, they were very impressed with my work because it only had two characters in it, um, uh, the only music in it, by the way, given the fact that Greece is a musical, the only music in that was the Brandenburg Concerto number no. 3. And it was one nurse, one quadriplegic, and it was a precursor to whose life is it anyway, uh, in that, uh, she was trying to convince him that there was something to go on living for. And so what I think they were impressed with is the fact that I, uh, I found ways to keep that life going in a single room with only one character that moved. I think, but you'll have to ask you'll have to ask Ken about that. And uh,
1: well, we'll be here on uh, Tuesday night, so we'll, uh, along with you and uh, everyone else, so we'll get to that. But they took out a full page ad. I love this saying that they were seeking material.
2: They did. Uh, yeah. i mean they were full of chutzpah i mean there's no other word for it because i mean it seems outrageous now but that was was also back in the days when variety was uh, still of course a printed a printed piece so people everybody saw variety everybody saw it and it cost them a lot of money and they didn't have a whole lot of money they'd only done a couple of projects but they did it and that's kind of chance i found ken and maxine took all the time all the way through that's why greece Greece survived to become this juggernaut. I mean, I don't know whether you saw that figure um, because quite frankly, I had never seen this figure. There have now been over 120,000 productions of Greece worldwide. Uh, That's just a staggering thing that came out of this little piece, like you use the perfect metaphor, the little engine that could. We were just struggling to get on. You know, and then when we struggled to get on, we were struggling to survive another week and then a month. And then it just kept growing. But you are so right when you say it did not just all of a sudden become the great hit of Broadway like some things do. Uh, it was a slow growth. But the difference is that once the growth happened, it never slipped back. And it didn't slip back for eight years. And mm-hmm.
1: then we oh, ran A, a friend of Ken's that he had gone to high school with, I think, Mm -hmm. Uh, had seen this production in Chicago and told him he had to get to Chicago to see this. He goes to Chicago. Not not this production. No,
2: no. It was a whole different production. It was a completely amateur production.
1: Yes, it was an amateur production, uh, but it was a production that ended up becoming this production, a a version of this production. I want to say this because the production that he went to see, he goes to see this in an old uh, trolley, Warehouse that had been converted into a theater. Uh, He goes to this theater. There are not even seats in this theater. That's, you know, he's sitting on newspapers on the floor. Um, Can you describe for our viewers uh, what that production was like based on what you've heard uh, or seen uh, and how gritty that production was? Very different and how anybody would be interested in getting that show to Broadway because it became a very different show.
2: Well, it became a different show because what Ken saw was the kernel in that show. Uh, That had come together in, again, another uh, group of serendipitous moves uh, by Jim Jacobs and Warren Casey who were good friends and they basically decided one day, "Let's, let's try writing a show. And they started writing a musical, and Tim Jacobs was so passionate about Greece. Well, when this production, I never saw the Chicago production. I wouldn't have seen it in, even if I could have. But it was uh, it was an amateur production. It was only run on weekends, and I think it only ran for uh, for three or four months. Maybe it ran longer than that, uh, but it was just on the weekends and. It, it's funny because Mary Lou Henner and Jim Canning, who were in the, that cast and who later joined our cast, uh, they talked about the fact that when they went in for audition, there was a stack of music sitting on the piano, and there were like 75 to 100 songs. And they'd say, here, you try this one, uh, or you look like this, try this. And so they would just sit around and uh, and then start uh, reading and singing some of these songs. Uh, So that's how the auditions went. And what Ken saw, I mean, he he uses a phrase often that you could still see the paint marks um, because they had been done much like one puts together a high school prom was the way the set was done. But something that didn't get in the book and doesn't get mentioned, and it does sound very cool, they had a real car that they couldn't get on and off the stage. So it sat down in a corner below the
0: stage. (laughs) (laughs)
2: <laughs> which was Grease Lightning. And somehow there was a door there because it was an old trolley bar and so they could take it on and off. But it wasn't part of the original stage, but it was the real car. So I can only imagine the fumes that were, uh, that were going into that audience uh, every night as Grease Lightning came on and off. Um, but it's also that, that production was, and this is one of the things we talk about often, that was 75% book at that point and only 25% music. And we, one of the reasons I think Ken and Maxine wanted me is because they knew that I was good with working with writers and uh, would be able to help Jim and Warren find ways to cut down and reshape the book. And that's what we did while we were auditioning for a month. We worked on the script in the evenings and uh, it was great fun actually.
1: And as the, the company started coming together, I, I mean, then you, uh, Pat Birch comes into the production and uh, you've got uh, Carol Dimas and Barry Boswick, all the pieces start coming together uh, for this production. But going back again, um, there was trepidation on your part. Uh, you uh, were actually going in a different direction. I think that you were getting involved with the American Film Institute, which was just getting started. Uh, am I correct on that
2: it was it was only three years old at that point and I had decided I had decided that I should not uh, that I should give up directing in the theater because clearly that wasn't going to happen in a way I I might have liked and I'd go try to be a film director so I had gone out to California to aFI and was about to make my first... Uh, short film. I mean, it's to be about 30 minutes. No, less than that. I think 20 minutes. And that's when I got the phone call, um, saying, we're interested in you. Will you come back to New York? And I remember going downstairs and talking to my fellow AFI students and saying, I don't know, these producers just called and there's something called Greece, a very odd title. um, um but it was from New York, I said. And so I think I should give this some, some thought. So they're sending a script. Uh, no, they didn't send a script because I knew they knew that would <laughs> I would never have gone to New York. They simply were willing to pay for me to come to New York to meet with the authors. And that's what I did. And, it, of course, those are the moments, just like that production Ken and Maxine saw, that changed one's life. I mean, and changed my life forever in a profound way.
1: Well, yeah, I love all of the, I mean, the the detail in the book, and of course, uh, the way that the book is laid out with everyone giving their uh, anecdotes of how these things fall into place. Um, You had a meeting to meet with Pat Birch, who was on her way to meet with John Hausman, and you were caught in traffic. She's, you know, didn't want to keep him waiting. So, and I know how those things go. If you are on a way on a on your way to meet someone in this city and things are not going well, it's like the hell with this. I'm giving up on this. And that almost happened.
2: But it did they- almost happen. And an important thing to know is is you said Pat Birch came along, got involved. Pat Birch came first. It's very unusual. Uh, Ken and Maxine knew that she was the perfect person. And of course they were absolutely right. Uh, that she was perfect her, on her, her that, on work. work and that they, they, she had just done. Uh, um,
1: You're a good man, Charlie Brown. Yeah, very much.
2: Thank you. And also the other one, the, uh, was it the me, nobody knows. That's right. Yeah. And uh, so they just knew that, uh, that she was really good with kids and helping non-dancers dance. So anyway, this was very important. And, um, uh, and when I, when I came, I treated it very importantly. It's not that I was cavalier about it, but, but I couldn't afford a taxi. I mean, I literally couldn't afford a taxi. And, uh, and so I had taken the bus. Well, we all know what happens to buses. In
0: Manhattan <laughs>
2: oftentimes, and it was completely jammed in traffic. Um, so that's why I was late, but of course I, I, I was too embarrassed to tell them that. So I just said the taxi got, uh, got stuck in traffic. Uh, but Pat was, and Pat, Pat moves, as you know, like a whirlwind. So she was ready to move on <laughs> to the next thing. And she said, well, I don't know if this guy is not on time. Anyway, as soon as I came in, we had an instant rapport, and it stayed that way for the last 50 years. Uh, I mean, it's been a remarkable uh, professional partnership and friendship, for that matter. But, uh, but yes, that meeting. I'm actually speaking to you from that apartment right now. I know. Uh, in fact, I'm in the room where I, first, where I first met Pat Birch, and I'm in the room where I first uh, heard a little bit of the score.
1: It sounds like a song title to me in the room where it happens. Yes,
2: exactly. (laughs) What a good idea, Richard. We need to collaborate on a musical.
1: Yeah. (laughs) So uh, once all of the pieces are starting to fall into place and you get a theater and everything starts moving, uh, take us into the early days of the rehearsal process and as the musical starts to take shape. And we don't want to give away too much because we want people to buy the book. And, well, and tune back in for part two. Yes.
2: Uh, tonight, tonight. Well, you can't in a way give up too much because there's so much more in the book. Because it's tell just, me
1: more, tell me more. Okay. Yes, exactly.
2: And because we had over a hundred, hundred and twenty participants. Uh, because that was the concept of the book—that it would be—it would be all eight years. I mean, there are lots of books about the history of putting on plays, and some some of the great ones of all time. That *My Fair Lady* had said—they're they're fabulous books. But nobody—I don't.
1: Let's stop for just a moment, yep. if you don't mind, and yep. let's back up for a moment. This book came about. Um, this is actually um, a result of COVID.
2: It is. It is because uh, the original company which is uh, the company that opened at the Eden, at the Eden Theater, I keep adjusting my camera, sorry. Uh, uh, At the Eden Theater had never had a reunion just of that company. And a number of the members of the company, vulnerable like we all were, just wanted to be back in touch and wanted to set this up. So we ended up with a Zoom that was supposed to last, I think an hour. I think it went on for three and a half uh, and it was a remarkable thing, but but everybody was it. They just kept saying we have to do something to mark this fiftieth year, and uh, so the idea that that they they talked about and wanted to talk about was the idea of a book, and uh, the idea that that they had at that point was maybe maybe each of the original people could write a chapter. Well. It turns out I had for several years, I'm very slow on acting when it doesn't come from producers hiring me, on acting on ideas of my own. And I had had an idea a couple of years before that to do something in terms of writing about all of those companies. And so the next day, because Adrienne had been so enthusiastic about the idea of a book, I called Adrienne and I said, Adrienne, here's my idea. What do you think? And if you do think, then let's join on this. And that's what we did. And then we asked Ken, who knows everything, Greece, uh, to, to join in with us. And that's how, the, that's how collaboration came into being. Um, but it, it absolutely probably would not have happened because of COVID. And it was, it was the perfect COVID activity because, you know, you were so involved and you were so creatively focused that isolation did not seem a problem. You know, and we of course had the tools of Zoom or phone calls. But so everyone, when the call went out for stories uh, and uh, and to contribute and what we were trying to do, and this we've belabored over this a long time, and Mary Lou Henner helped us in terms of constructing that because she's such a She's written six books, I mean, among all of her other
1: And her memory, I just had her on, as you know. Uh, Her (laughs) memory is just out of this world, so she can remember details that I'm sure.
2: She can remember details, and she also, it gets so irritating, because she can correct you all the time in what (laughs) you think. She says, no, that's actually not. But if I had lunch with her uh, uh, 25, 35, whatever years ago, she can tell me what I had for lunch. Uh, that's, that's too much memory for me. Um, but, uh, but anyways, she, and she's by the one that gave us the title that came much later after we had uh, completed the book. But anyway, that's how it got started. And during COVID, what would happen is in terms of process, just going back and even step before the rehearsal is that in the book, I'm the one that knew everybody the best because I had worked with them, you know, in rehearsals. So, I called them or wrote them, and, and they then sent me stories. I did the first edit on them, and then Adrienne and I got together and seriously started shaping them. But I always tried to make sure that what edit I turned in for us to work on was, based, was okay with whoever contributed. Well, I can't tell you in COVID how much fun that was because it was like being back in rehearsal because I was back working, as I say, with the
0: kids,
2: (laughs) and I couldn't see them. So to me, I still thought of them as kids, because what we were writing about were experiences that happened decades ago. And I, I just couldn't, I just felt so lucky with that, with COVID. And as you know, and I mean, as you, as we all know who work in creative fields, when you get involved with something, you just forget everything else. And I I just did for such a long time. I just couldn't wait to get back to somebody else's story to start editing. And then once we edited, of course, then we started interweaving some of it. We started trying to figure out a structure. I mean, it basically follows the same structure that I had originally thought might work, except when we finished the first, when we finished it, as we thought it was done, much like the much like when we opened at the Eden and then the previews happened and the audience tells you what they don't like. Uh, we sent it to six or seven people who were, we were close to who were wonderful critics and who helped us restructure the second half because it had been slightly predictable. And they helped us figure out ways. Well, they didn't help us. They just pointed out that this is happening. And then we figured out how to structure it so that, uh, so that it enters a whole new dimension as it bells toward the conclusion.
1: Now, the people that you were sending it to for their uh, critiques, if you will, were they involved with the production or outside? No,
2: no, that was very important that they just be people who might read this book. Uh, Nobody was involved with the production. Uh, We never showed it to anyone uh, at all, uh, except the three of us, until we sent it to the publisher, except for these six people. And uh, they're, they're, they're given a thank you in the book because they really were invaluable. It's like you, the, as you know, as you're reading the book, uh, a number of very important people like John Hausman or Will Hold, um, uh came in and gave us wonderful suggestions, which became part of the finished product. And it's what made the show successful. A director is a fool if he doesn't take the best idea in the room. Uh, or even in this case, the best idea in town. So whoever came up with a good idea, I was all ears. I might be a little stubborn at first because you have to convince yourself that something's working in order to convince the actors it's working. But in point of fact, you know that if something's not working as well
1: as it should. I totally agree. Well, Tom, everybody knows if you see an accident or if you see some amazing event, uh, six people can see the same event. And six people will have a different point of view of the same event. So you've got all of these different players who have all experienced the same event, and they all may have a different point of view of the same event. Did you have those experiences also with people having a different point of view of the same situation? And if so, how did you deal with the editing process of those situations?
2: Well, this is actually, I love this. And I tell this, I, I, I'm fond of telling this story. I did a lot of television and there used to be, this will be a good lead in, but there, the famous producer, Steve Boczko, who did Hill Street Blues and L.A. Law and I directed L.A. Law and, and other things, but he did not like dealing much with actors because they were always say what they thought the script should be. And an actor went up to him one day when he came down on his rare visits to the set and said, Stephen, I I wonder if I could talk to you about my part here. I just don't think my actor, my role would say this. And uh, Stephen said, oh, Bob. Oh, yes, he would. Look, right here. It's written in the script. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's the way I feel about the book, because people did have different ideas. We tried to get of what happened at what time. We tried to get the accurate ones. We tried to judge it as best we could. But in some cases, nobody really knows. So we simply made a choice. And as I tell everybody, and that is now the history of Greece because nobody else is going to write this book. So that's just what it is now. But it just reminds me of that story.
1: And was there anything that you learned that you didn't know uh, from hearing these stories uh, that uh, about personal lives or things that were going on behind the scenes that you were not aware of at the time?
2: Oh, I learned a huge amount because, of course, as a director... Uh, you leave after opening and although you come back to spiff it up and and clean it up um, and replace with other actors uh, you don't know what's going on backstage mm-hmm. except what the what stage managers tell you and I found out lots of things and one of the things I found out some were a little painful because you think you're you're and you're certainly you're trying to be as sensitive as you can always mm-hmm. to the actors but but one of the things I was really shocked, to find out, Willa, Eileen Kristen wrote her story about uh, playing Patty in the original. Uh, she had a song uh, when we first went into rehearsal, and we ended up cutting that the first after the first preview. And uh, I thought, I thought I had told her, uh, or I had had someone else close to her tell her. It turns out nobody had told her. So the first time she heard it was in the note session. Uh, which is heartbreaking mm-hmm. because you're just racing as a director. You're just pushing through because we were in trouble. We were in some severe trouble after the first preview. It was a mess, and we were just moving as fast as we can. And And those kind of things came as uh, as distressing. There's another one with Perry Lee, Peggy Lee Brennan, who talks about the fact that uh, when I came down on her hard after she had been in the show for quite some time for improving on things and adding too many bits and she was crying and uh, it the story ends nicely because there's a <laughs> reproach uh, but it uh, but i i just it pained me to know that i had hurt her so deeply because you, you you know as a director you sometimes you just keep moving and sometimes you don't see the power that's sometimes happening
1: I mean, going back now, are there things that you would have done differently uh, with the uh, original production, or yeah, you, you know, after uh, opening night you walk away, uh, you move on with your career, but you've had the opportunity to go back, you know, with uh, subsequent productions and do it again, and as time goes on. Uh, you have a different perspective of doing things. There's a wonderful, and I talked about this, I had the great pleasure of uh, interviewing uh, Joanna Gleason yesterday, and I talked about uh, this great PBS special uh, the other night of uh, Company. I don't know if you saw it or not. And they talked about the evolution of how that show has evolved to the production that's currently on Broadway. And uh, even though it's still set in the 50s, uh, Greece, uh, you know, Times have changed. We've moved on. People's sensibilities have changed somewhat, uh, and you've changed also. Uh, you grow as we all do. Uh, what has changed within you as a director and the way that you look at this production as you've gotten older?
2: Well, uh, I guess fortunately, I can't see that production <laughs> because it's theater, and the the beauty and the and the sadness of theater is it's ephemeral, so it's gone. Mm. Um, any any work I did on Greece was done in a in a concentrated period of time. It was done in those eight years. I'm sure were I to do another production uh, of Greece now, I would probably do it very differently. Um, uh, and I would like to go back in and work with Jim and Warren. Unfortunately, Warren's not here, uh, but work with them on on the book as well. But but I didn't have that chance for perspective. I mean, I did change things within Red within a number of road companies, but most of that was to adapt to a new actor playing it. I never tried to have those people copy uh, what had been done in the original production. The goal was always to keep it alive and fresh, um, but I, I wouldn't have had the perspective that early anyway. Uh, but I don't go see revivals of Greece, so I, I, I don't... <laughs> the, the, one of the best revivals I ever saw was Greece on Ice,
1: I loved it. That's pretty, that's dangerous, isn't it? Well, I would think so. But I couldn't
2: judge it because I, you know, I've been at the the, the ice skating was so dazzling. So I just thought it was fantastic. And I did see, I admit, I did see, I saw a revival in London that I liked a great deal because they basically made it into a concert. This was, uh, we had done two productions and then I think there was one more. And then there was one at the Dominion Theater. And that's the one I saw. And uh, and it was it was just a lot of fun, but other than that, I I, I don't go back to see Greece. Um, it's 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 done. Uh, been there, done that. Uh,
1: well, I mean, a lot of directors feel the same way. You, you, you know, uh, Leroy Ream said to me uh, a few years ago. He said, uh, when it comes to a uh, a production, and then they do uh, what are called revisals, where okay. a director comes in. And they feel that they're going to put their own spin on a production, uh, production of Oklahoma a couple of years ago, uh, where the director has a completely new version of uh, or a new vision of what they're going to do with the show. Leroy Reem says it's like uh, baking a red velvet cake. We all know what a red velvet cake looks like and what it tastes like. But if you're going to leave out this ingredient and this ingredient and this ingredient, it damn well Better taste, better than the original. Otherwise, why bother? Absolutely so, true. So uh, you've um, you haven't looked at subsequent uh, revivals, uh, so you have nothing to compare uh, to.
2: I don't. You know, it's interesting. I wrote Hal Prince a letter, um, a letter once because you know, of course, Hal did so many so many different brilliant musicals, and of course, there've been revivals of all of them. Uh, Except fan of the opera because it won't close, so there can't be any any revivals. Uh, probably won't be for decades because it'll be that original production. But I said, how do you take it when they do these revivals and they don't they don't give credit to the guy that helped shape that piece into what they could then work with? It's a whole different thing to revive a show because you're working with something that has already been formed. It's a little like a kid growing up. They need to be brought up with rules and some sort of beliefs so that then when they break away from it, they know what they're breaking away from. It's not just chaotic. And I feel that way. I always felt badly because sometimes I don't think in some of those revivals he was given credit for just what brilliance he had brought to the table, that they then revised, and I'm all for revising and shifting things as much as you want to, as you say, mm-hmm. if you have good reasons, and it and it it moves and becomes something as powerful as the original, but uh, but I just I but he. <laughs> He, he seemed to take it all in stride. I never did. I mean, the only two shows I had that, of, of all my Broadway shows and stuff, but the only two that that have revivals regularly, obviously, is Grease, which happens all the time. And the other one was Night Mother. Um, you know, and it's, um, um, and it's uh, yes, it's very personal. But I'm trying to follow in the steps of Hal Prince and just let it go.
1: Let it go. I have a question from one of our viewers, and maybe you have a take on this. Maybe you don't. Uh, But she said she would like to know, Danielle, uh, she would like to know if you had also directed the movie, what changes would you have made in the movie?
2: You know, that's really an interesting question. Danielle was her name? Danielle. Uh, Yeah, uh, Danielle. Because because I like the movie. I think the brilliance of the movie was that it wasn't like the stage show. Uh, because I think had I directed the movie, it would have been much more like the stage show. And the brilliance of the movie, I think, was Alan Carr's idea to see it through the prism of the 70s. So it's really not pure 50s at all. Oh, yeah. It's 70s. Uh, and that's what I think added to that. They also, of course, ended up with many people in our original cast, like John yeah. Tipolta, et etc. And, of course, they had the brilliant Pat Birch. Uh, so to a great extent, the best stuff I did was also went along with Pat, because we were partners in this production. We worked as a team on everything. And, uh, and you know, I would, had I made the movie, it would have been grittier, because we always with the show aimed for a documentary approach. But I don't think that would have been as successful. I mean, it's an interesting thing that Greece, and I said this recently to a critic, and in London because there's a, n- a new revival there I think it's London's revival number five uh, that just opened and he was he was he was doing a, a piece on that and on our book and he talked to me and he said well you're probably and I was going on about the fact that Greece has been softened with every revival that followed and it's it's the it's the pain of the author to have to watch that happen uh, and he said but you're actually the first aren't you and I had to say, well, yes, I guess I am. Because I know, again, one of the reasons I was hired was to make these people likable. So to a certain extent, it was softened even then. But we still had enough of it that it still seemed, it still seemed, at least we thought, to have that documentary feel. And that's been lost. Uh, now it's, it's much more of a cartoon. I mean, in another, another 20 years, I think it'll be all cartoon. And then somebody will do a revival. And, and reconstruct it and it'll be back to really nitty gritty and maybe much grittier than what we had, which I think would be really interesting. I'd like to think I'd be around to see that one because uh, I'd love to see that.
1: At the time that Grease was announced that the film was going to be made, uh, were you surprised, uh, number one, that at the casting or the way that it was being done or that uh, uh, of the major success and the impact that it had when it when it opened?
2: You know, I wasn't. Uh, I mean, by that point, I knew how successful with it. Well, with everybody, actually, Greece had become over time. I mean, the only thing I was worried about was the what everybody worried about at that point, uh, because usually when a Greece movie or when a movie opened, the show went down in audience. Well, the direct opposite happened with our show in that the movie opened and people wanted to see it live. So the the audience numbers just shot up exponentially. Uh, So there were many surprises in that. And because I knew John well, I was thrilled for him. And, I mean, it was phenomenal to see that come to be. And there were three or four other cast members in it as well. And I I knew a lot of the people. I'll tell you a story that actually many people don't know. But one of the things I learned early on in my career was – if you're jealous of something or you something is making you uncomfortable, uh, something you better embrace it in any way you can. Otherwise, it's going to be painful for you. And so what I did was I had a party before they started shooting at my house in Los Angeles for all the Greece alumni who had gravitated out there and the movie cast. Uh, and after that moment, I was one with the zeitgeist. You know, we were all connected and it, 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 was, it was one of the best things I could have done. I mean, Randall Kleiser and I have stayed friends and he's the one, of course, who directed the movie. And he, uh, he and I were actually, some of our first big publicity was in, you remember Interview Magazine when it used to be oh, that, yes, big, yes. that big magazine? Well, Randall and I each had a picture on either side of, uh, of each other and we've just kind of been connected that way ever since. But but I saw the movie. I saw the movie because a good friend of mine who was an executive at Paramount, uh, Larry Mark, arranged a private screening room for me to see it all by myself so I could make any any thoughts on the movie. I had make any decisions and decide how I was going to report what I felt. And turns out I had a great time, so there was no problem. But I was very glad to see it alone. Because it's great. Very It's hard to let something go like that. It's not a matter of what they did to it. It's just up until then, it had been my baby, totally my baby. Well, and and our production team, and Pat, and Ken, and Maxine, and Jim, and Warren, et cetera. But, uh,
1: well, Dodie Goodman was a very dear friend of mine. And Dodie uh, and I were on our way to do a gig together once. And we got, uh, and our driver was speeding to get us to the gig. And we were pulled over by a cop. And uh, he, as he pulled over, the driver said, uh, I have Dodie Goodman in the back seat. And she rolled the window down and said, I was in Greece. And he said, I recognize you. And he let us go.
2: <laughs> oh, that is very funny.
1: I've never heard that story. So great. Just she, was,
2: she was fabulous. I, um, loved, I loved our Miss Lynch's. Um, and uh, they, they were a hoot. And there they were, decades older than anybody else in the cast, all of them. Uh, But they were terrific. Dorothy Leon, who played the first one. Uh, But Dodie Goodman, I'd seen so often. Anyway, she was great. Just
1: wonderful. Uh, I want to, you're living your life, you're doing, uh, directing the incredible productions, Moon Over Buffalo, which I absolutely loved. Uh, And did you keep journals uh, throughout? These years, uh, or did you? Is this just recall going back and remembering everything? Uh, you
2: mean in terms of the book?
1: Uh, in terms of this book, uh, have you kept journals? Uh, throughout- I don't keep journals.
2: I keep calendars because I. <laughs> we talked about the theater being being uh, ephemeral. Uh, the uh, I don't like writing down feelings because I see the event and I remember the feelings but I find I do like writing down notations on event just to jog it. And that's, uh, I don't think I referred to that in this case, because Greece is, I swear, I can see everything in the Royale theater. I can see every every moment and every beat of that production. Uh, So it's all just present in my mind. And that's really true of most productions I've done. Uh, It also... The one who doesn't remember things is Adrian. She, she, she. You see that she talks about it in the book. She just doesn't remember the details. For instance, she doesn't remember. She remembers getting the call for the Tony, but all she remembers about the Tonys is what she wore. There's a story in the book which I think is very charming. And Ken remembers every, everything. And anytime there's a disagreement about what happened, I'll always give it over to Ken because he just remembers the as if it just happened yesterday.
1: Well, those who watch my show know that every day I come up with a word or phrase for the day. And the word that I chose for today, believe it or not, is self-respect. And something that we keep in this business. uh, And that's my word and phrase for the day. And we're going to use this. uh, And anyone who comments with uh, the hashtag self-respect has a chance to possibly win a copy of your book tonight. So I want to ask you, as you went through high school, how did you maintain your self-respect? You know, I think the
2: way I was brought up, um, I always believed in myself. And as discouraging as things went or as much as I might be pushed in another direction, I always stayed true to that. Uh, I can remember standing up for things going through high school that, I think, how did I have the, the guts to do that? Um, but it's just the way I wanted to live my life, and I still do. I know I've l- lost certain productions because of some of those things, but I feel if you don't have self-respect, you have nothing, uh, because uh, then you doubt yourself, you don't like yourself, um, and, you, uh, and you are vulnerable then to what other people think. But it, never, it just never bothered me somehow.
1: That's wonderful, and I'm I'm totally in in agreement with you. Um, This is just the beginning. Uh, We're going to be, tomorrow night, I have Lucy Arnaz on the show. Uh, And then the next night, uh, many of the people that we've talked about tonight uh, are going to be here, along with you and Ken, uh, to uh, go with part two, uh, to hear their versions of these stories. Uh, And I hope that you'll all come back. Uh, As we wind down, I just got, as I do, uh, with all of our shows just some questions uh just to give uh, a broader sense of uh you can and the first question that i'm going to ask you is what is the best possible attitude to have in this business
2: um tr- well it, it this is probably not so much an attitude as a a way of living and it's a sense of humor about whatever's happening uh and using your your term self-respect i think having respect for those you're working with their ideas are often just just as important as yours and even if you ultimately decide it needs to go away you have to have the respect for them to let them show what they wanted to show and try what they wanted to try and i think that's when people get into trouble is when there's not that mutual respect
1: amen totally agree with you uh, this is an interesting question have you ever in your life stolen anything? And if so, what did you steal and when? Uh that's
2: so interesting. I don't- <laughs> That is so interesting. I find myself blushing actually because I'm thinking, well, I've done the usual stealing soaps and things from hotels. Okay. Uh, because I can't, I still to this day can't resist. I have a cabin in the mountains, and every time I see those little soaps, I think, well, this is just perfect up
0: there. It's
2: <laughs> it's one week one weekend use, and so I do that. But I do remember one time. I do remember, and this is something I feel quite guilty about actually. But I was in auditions for a show, so I was having to to rush. But in the parking lot, I backed into a um, back into a car and broke one of its headlights. And I I left some money, but I just I just couldn't leave my number because I knew it was going to be an endless thing. But I have thought often of that, and it felt guilty about it ever since.
1: I, if you're watching tonight, please don't contact either one of us. So. <laughs>
0: So, uh, uh, yeah,
2: exactly.
1: I I just have to hope they were not in Shabbos. Um, uh you mentioned. I mean, you are staying with Pat. She has a new dog. Are you a pet person?
2: Oh, I'm a big pet person. Uh, I have a I I I always rescue my dogs, and uh, I had rescue dogs as, as as a kid, and I've had as an adult. I've had six rescue collies. And, uh, and, and the one I have now is, uh, is the youngest I've ever had. I adopted him when he was about one and a half, and he's now a little over two. And his name is Finnegan. Oh, and good. he's a great guy. I'm sorry he's not here. I would put him on camera That's so you wonderful. could see him.
1: That's great. Um, what took energy away from you this past week?
2: <laughs> the idea of traveling, I am a huge traveler. I travel. I mean, before in 2019 was my heaviest traveled year yet, and that I was in many many countries and just having the best time. I mean, these these are not business trips, and uh, and then of course it all stopped because of COVID. And this is only my second time, uh, actually, since things opened up of really flying anywhere and just getting things organized because <laughs> you would. You had found patterns in your old life, and now it seems like it's starting from scratch. You know, will I need this? Will I not need this? I mean, New York's the second home. I know what I need, but it all became way overworked, and so that's what caused me stress. Other than that, that was just excitement because we have so many events going on in celebration of the book. The other thing that caused me stress, though, I have to admit it, and I might as well admit it to you, uh, is that uh, I'm also aware that I'm also all... I'm already a little melancholy at the fact that this next two weeks will come to an end and then Greece will go on making its history, but that we will have celebrated in in the peak of our celebrations.
1: Tom, I'm just going to tell you, my advice to you is just to cherish every single moment. Absolutely. live in the moment and just drink it all in. It's all great. And I can't wait. I'm going to be... Uh, at uh feinstein's 54 below everyone uh on uh, October, uh june 1st uh as you guys are celebrating uh mary lou Henner's put this incredible show together uh, and i will be there celebrating with all of you so just drink it in
2: that's excellent and i we look forward to seeing you there and thanks yeah. thanks for being so supportive
1: of us no, I- it's it's all great thank you um what uh, you know you've With this project, you have had the pleasure of working with so many people, and they've all had the pleasure of working with you. Uh, What one thing have you learned about yourself from working on this book that has surprised you the most that you really didn't know about yourself prior to working on this book?
2: Well, I did know about myself, but I thought I had gotten better at it and that is when i get an idea i am i am dogged in making sure if i think it's the right idea <laughs> that it is the idea that's adopted and and processed and i thought i had kind of mellowed out i haven't uh, i still am just so passionate about something that when i get an idea i'm going to i'm going to push it through and uh, <laughs> that's just the way i guess it'll be for the rest of my life
1: Mel, you go for it Uh, what are you currently reading speaking of books
2: uh well i haven't had a chance to 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 read much because i'm uh, but i just i've just been involved reading the book sugi bain um and i'm i'm just part way into it i find it hard to concentrate on anything right now because there's so much going on that i have to take care of so i spend way too much time on the computer answering the emails and setting up events and all that sort of thing about this. But when I can, it's, it's marvelous to, to read that kind, of, uh, that kind of writing that is so substantive and so surprising and so vulnerable. I mean, just amazing. Another one that I read right before that was something called A Little Life, which is truly uh, stark and uh, the dark side of life. And, uh, and it was quite wonderful as well
1: oh wow uh what in the world would you most like to see protected
2: our democracy and I'm really concerned like everybody is I mean it's cliche I suppose but uh, I think we're in severe danger mm-hmm. and I don't know I don't know what's going to fix that um, uh, because we are so divided, and we so seem so incapable of uh, communicating together and finding compromises, which is how a democracy survives. And I feel like the the strongman interests of uh, a lot of the population is is taking. You know, we're we're minority rule. I mean, I know I'm getting into politics, but we're minority, minority. rule. Uh, the so many of the things that were set up by our founders, brilliant as they were, were to appease certain, certain states uh, so that they had uh, as equal power. Uh, but as it's turned out now, uh, the population of the populous states is, is, is exponentially more than in these other states, and yet they have uh, equal power. And that's not right because uh, the majority can never rule at the moment. And so I don't know how that gets worked out, but it's just, there's just, a, uh, there's just something happening where you can't, you can't reason. I mean, so I, just saw, I just saw Tracy Let's play the, uh, the minutes of uh, this afternoon at the matinee. And uh, it's obviously dealing with that, dealing with the history, the real history and dealing with that and then moving forward And I don't think you can move forward without facing the truth. I don't think we can do it in our lives. We know the lives that have been destroyed because they could never face up to what really happened to them or what they really were in order to reform. And the same thing's true with our country. You've got to face it. We have many problems. Fine. Nothing wrong with that. That's our history. But Well, there's a lot wrong with it, but what's really wrong for it now is that that, uh, we have to move forward. We have to fix it, and uh, we have to fix it by understanding it. So anyway, sorry. I I purposely tried not to talk politics because, one, I'm either speaking to the converted because we're all of like mindsets, Or I just get myself so wound up and there's nothing we can do. Like the gun control issue is just, I mean, all over New York, I feel it. In Los Angeles, I feel it. Everybody knows nothing's going to happen. Nothing's going to happen. And this is, how is this possible in America? You know, I mean, when you hear this on
1: and we'll do another show because that that's a that's a topic that I'm very compassionate about. It's well,
2: indeed, we should be yeah, and passionate yeah. about fixing it. Uh, it's just, I mean, when you have when you have uh, idiocy of statements like "Let's have schools with only one door." Uh, uh, where do you go from there? You know, it's one of the memes uh, the memes that show up on Facebook. People are clever and mm-hmm. this very smart idea. Now, what do we do in case of a fire? Um, I, I mean, it, anyway, <laughs> anyway, here we go. Here we go. You see, this is immediate. Greece is history, so I can talk objectively about that. <laughs> i not so objective.
1: Well, thank you, Tom, for going there. Um, do you keep a to-do list?
2: I, I try not to keep any lists. Uh, because I find that then I always feel like I fail because I didn't get everything everything done in the right in the right order. But I definitely have in my mind a list of things I need to accomplish in any given day. I don't keep life to-do lists. And people talk to me at a bucket, li- bucket list. And I said, I'm not ready to live my bucket list. First of all, I've been living my bucket list uh, for the last 30 years, because I always knew it was important to travel. I always knew it was important to do other things. I mean, one of the things I did long after I, my expiration date was take up, uh, take up the flying trapeze. And it became a huge part of my life. Um, and who would have predicted that? Um, but it was uh, at a time when I was getting to where I felt like I had, I'd done television, I'd done film. And I just felt I was just repeating myself. And this gave me a whole new life. So that's the way I do, I I just follow my, I just follow one step in front of another and see what shows up. And then I either embrace it or I move another direction.
1: I love that. And this is my last question. Have you ever met a celebrity and found that they were much kinder than you even thought that they were going to be?
2: Do you know, I have a, I'm going to take that in a slightly different direction. People always ask me who has been difficult to work with. And I said, I will tell you this, no great actor is difficult to work with. They may have difficulties and you may have to find ways to help them, but they are not going to be difficult for stupid reasons. It is only those people who are scared uh, and because they know they're they're on borrowed time that are going to be difficult for you to work with. And I find most celebrities are extraordinarily kind. I mean, they just are, unless they're they're what I call the drugstore celebrities, the ones that decided on the way to the drugstore and because they have wonderful genetics. (laughs) Uh, I think I'll be an actor and they become Uh, a big star. Those people are constantly scared because they know that it's got there by chance, you know, and they know that it's based on genetics and not on talent or on study. Anyway, we could talk We could talk about these subjects that you've just brought up in this last 10 minutes. I love it. A long, long time.
1: <laughs> Norm- normally, I start with a surprise question. I, uh, I was so excited about interviewing you tonight that I forgot my surprise question. So I'm going to end with a surprise question. Tonight. Okay. And the surprise question is, are you a morning or a night person?
2: Uh, I function at my best in the morning, but I end up being a night person. And by that, I try to have both because... I wake up pretty early because especially in California, I wake up to the sun and I'm I'm very active and I do a lot of athletic stuff. And but I cannot let a day go. So at night, even when I'm falling asleep and a book is falling on my head, I think, well, I'll just read one more chapter or I'll just I need to see this because everybody's talking about this on television. I should watch this. And uh, so I I don't know what I'm going to do about that, because the the nighttime is getting shorter and shorter. (laughs)
1: Well, let's give away uh, a book. Uh, Tell me more. Tell me more. This is what we're going to do. I'm going to click on this and we've got a few people who have signed up here and we'll find out who our uh, winner is tonight. And uh, let's see who it is. Pam Stubbs. She wins a lot. She shows up and she wins. Pam, get in touch with me and I will make sure that you get this book. Uh, Tom, uh, don't go anywhere for a moment. Okay. I'm going to give you the final word in just a moment. Um, I've had such a great time tonight, and I will see you again in two nights. Look so uh, don't go anywhere for a moment. Okay. Uh, as I said uh, at the beginning of the show tonight, uh, self-respect. Uh, that's what it's all about. We all have to not only respect ourselves, uh, but we have to respect each other. And so... Go out, do something nice for somebody else without expecting anything in return. This book is incredible. Uh, I know that we have a lot of Grease fans here tonight. As you all know, I end my shows by telling everyone to go out and do something nice for somebody else without expecting anything in return. If this was your first time here tonight, I hope it won't be your last. Please consider subscribing to Richard Skipper Celebrates. My goal is to celebrate artists such as Tom. Uh, And so leave a comment on YouTube. Even if you've left a comment during the show, leave a comment on YouTube after the show. That's what potential sponsors look at. Uh, And let your friends know about this. Then go to your Facebook friends list. And I want you to reach out to the fourth name that pops up and reach out with a phone call. Not an email message, not a text message, not a private inbox message. Yesterday, Joanna Gleason said something very interesting. She said at the end of her shows, she tells everyone on Sunday night, reach out with a phone call. And I think it's an interesting thing. It's the end of the week. We're going into the holiday weekend. Reach out with a phone call tonight and ask everyone that you call or that one person that you call, did you see the interview tonight? And if they say no, tell them about the interview. But more importantly, Tell them about the book. And if they didn't see the interview, what you're going to do is you're going to order a copy of the book, and you're going to send it to them. And you're also going to keep a copy for yourself. So you're going to order two copies. And we're going to keep this. Tom, are you aware that this is number one on Amazon right now?
2: I did. Uh, Mary Lou Henner actually sent me that information. I, yeah. was, thrilled. I was thrilled to see it.
1: So we're going to get this on the New York Times bestsellers list. Well,
2: from your your mouth to, uh, you know, hope so.
1: So it's up to each and every one of us to tell everybody else more. Tell them more. Tell them more and keep it going. So as I always say, uh, my dear friend Sean Moniker says, we're all in this together, but we're not in the same boat. And you never know what someone else is going through right now. But I always say, if you're going to go out in a boat, make sure you bring a skipper along. So Tom, I'm going to leave the screen and I'm going to give you the final word tonight. Anything you want to say about anything that we talked about tonight that you want to build upon, anything that we didn't talk about that you wish we had, or just any final message that you wish that we had uh, talked about, uh, you've got the final word. And when you say goodbye the credits will roll and I'll see you in two nights. What an interesting
2: opportunity. Thank you.
1: Thank Um, you. And it's all yours. Thank you.
2: You know, for, for those of you who are, who are still with us, um, the tying into Richard's idea of self-respect and, and what you do. I mean, my favorite meme uh, that I try to follow is in each and every day, perform random acts of kindness and I think if we do that, we'd end up with a much better world. I know that sounds totally Pollyanna and approach, but I think you have to start somewhere. I think many of you out there, probably all of you out there who are fascinated by theater and art um, are aware that we have to do something to help our world, help our country first, which then helps our world. And at least kindness would get us part way there. And then activism would get us the rest of the way there. So uh, I wish us all luck. I do hope you'll buy the book because we put a lot of passion and heart into it. And I think you'll find it surprisingly moving. Um, I know many of the participants did when they finally got to see the book, which they only got to see in this last two weeks. Um, But we formed families. We formed families and it was based on people caring about each other. And those families became one big family, which became the family of Greece. And that's what this book is about. So we share that to you, which is our art, but we also share with you the passion to make it the world a better place and a better place in which to exist. It's been a pleasure. Thanks very much, and thank you, Richard. And thanks for this last moment, having, having the last word. Bye, and good night.